right. Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Episode two, the sequel, you are back. Those of you who tuned in last week, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who reached out to tell me how much you love the show. The second best thing you can do is message me on Facebook or Twitter and let me know what you like about this show. The very best thing that you can do is to share the show with your friends. That's the only way we're going to grow is if you hand it out to other people and say, hey, you got to listen to this. This is something new. This is something different and something big is going on here. Uh, Normally, I'm going to try to cover, uh, you know, two or three topics on each show and maybe kind of bounce from one to the other. But after I recorded this, I realized that I'm just not going to have time to do this first segment. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to cut straight to the part where I start talking about the civil war in Yemen and the U.S.'s involvement in that. As you know, a few weeks ago, uh, Congress passed a motion to get us out of Yemen, and Donald Trump vetoed that. So uh, with that being said, we'll get to the the part where I was going to put in. um, I was going to talk about Ilhan Omar a little bit, but unfortunately we just didn't have time in this episode, so I may use that in a future episode or just release it on its own as well. But anyway, thanks for listening, and let's get into the show. All right. Let's move on to Yemen. I'm going to read an article here from CNN. President Donald Trump issued the second veto of his presidency Tuesday, stopping a congressional resolution that would have sought to end U.S. involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Quote from Trump, This resolution is an unnecessary, dangerous attempt to weaken my constitutional authorities, endangering the lives of American citizens and brave service members, both today and in the future. Trump wrote to the Senate Tuesday. Supporters of the War Powers Resolution argued the U.S. shouldn't be involved in the war without explicit permission from Congress. Opponents argued the U.S. does not have boots on the ground and is offering non-combat technical assistance to Saudi Arabia, who is an ally. So, first of all, the way this is all done goes against the original intent of the Constitution, the way that it was written, the way our founding fathers wanted us to do it. The president was supposed to ask Congress for permission to go to war, and Congress would vote yes or no. The president was allowed to react if we were attacked, but that was pretty much it. Otherwise, you're not going to some other country to fight unless you run it through Congress first. Problem is, um, over probably the last, I don't know, 100 years or so, Congress has allowed the president to take more and more power on which allows them to take less responsibility for the actions that happen on their watch. A lot of the laws that they're supposed to make, a lot of the things that they are supposed to pass or that are supposed to go through them, instead what they've done is they've elected to hand a lot of those powers over to the president. So by them handing a lot of their duties over to the president, they can take credit when something good happens and they, they can say, you know, look at this great stuff that happened on my watch. And if something bad happens or something turns out not to be so great, then they're just able to throw their hands up and say, you know, wasn't my fault. President did it. Make sure you still vote for me because because that had nothing to do with me. Now, if you're just some bureaucrat who wants to get reelected and live off the taxpayers for your whole life, this is a pretty good deal. But it's a pretty big problem when it throws off all the checks and balances that our founders intended And we get into messes much like the ones that we're in now all over the Middle East. So, 
U.S. forces are involved in the civil war in Yemen. Most citizens didn't even know we were in Yemen. Um, and even less people can point out Yemen on a map. But um, a few months ago, Saudi Arabia, who is our ally, uh, they took a bone saw and chopped up a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. And they got a lot of bad press. And the U.S. caught a lot of flack for being such good friends with them. There's a lot of drama in the media because while the media often runs pretty good cover for the government, uh, they didn't like this because this guy was a journalist. So, of course, you're going to protect your own before you stick your neck out for somebody else. So there's drama. Everybody wants to know what we're going to do about it. And, you know, Trump stays kind of quiet on it. So Congress, they asked Trump to denounce the Saudis, uh, which wouldn't have meant anything anyway. It would just be basically writing an angry letter to let them know that you're angry. Trump comes back and says that he talked to the Saudis, and the Saudis said they didn't do it. They seem like pretty trustworthy guys. They said they didn't strap this guy down and cut him up with a bone saw. Then, you know, they probably didn't. They seem cool. Um, and that's pretty much how it ended. That was where it stopped. Of course, the media threw a fit. They wanted more. Um, Donald Trump and really a lot of Congress didn't want to talk about it anymore, so we just kind of let it go. It kind of fizzled out a little bit, but it did manage to call some attention to the fact that we're helping the Saudis in the civil war raging in the small country of Yemen. So recently Congress voted on this war and they said we needed to get out of this war, partially because the Saudis did something pretty terrible. Um, now, Donald Trump, after Congress votes on it and gets it through, Donald Trump vetoes it. He claims that this weakens his constitutional authorities and it endangers our troops. So he took a very complicated issue and Congress debated it, weighed on it. They voted it through and he directs it all back as an attack to the Constitution, an attack on his authority, an attack on our brave troops that we have all over the world. Um... Republicans are very, very hesitant to criticize any of those things, right? They, they say they love the Constitution. They love it when it suits their needs. Um, you know, you got to support your president because you're stuck with him for these four years and he's going to be running for another term and you've got to support him at least through those. And then, of course, you got the troops. So by Donald Trump redirecting that all back to things that Republicans would never want to fight about, that basically means that this is all just going to die, and that's all just going to be dropped, and the U.S. is going to remain involved in Yemen for the foreseeable future. But how did Yemen get into a civil war? What does it have to do with us? What side are we on? Should we even be there? Um... We're going to answer these questions in this podcast. Now, when it comes to foreign relations, uh, especially in the Middle East, when there are so many countries and so many groups of people within those countries and so many different figures involved, this stuff can be very difficult to understand. And a lot of times people don't even want to think about it, so they just leave it to somebody else to deal with. I'm going to do my best to explain this to you as clearly as I possibly can. And listen, if you stick it through, you're going to pick up a lot. 
Um, if you're like me, sometimes it's it's really frustrating when you get kind of hung up on details and you can't completely get what's going on. But I would encourage you that if you feel like you're starting to get a little bit lost as we go through this, just stick it through. Just keep on listening and pick up what you can and then maybe, you know, wait a few weeks or, you know, a month or two, something like that. And and you can come back to this again. Um, and because you have a little bit better understanding of it, you're going to be able to pick up a little bit more if you go back and listen again. But I'm going to do my best to keep it as simple as I can because I want to help you understand this. I want you to know what's going on with your tax dollars and the troops that you know and other people in the world who who breathe and live and die just the same way that you do. So we're going to learn a lot here, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, just stick it through. If you start to get a little bit confused, just hang in there with me and um, I will do my best to keep things as clear as possible as we go through. So first, let's lay a few ground rules. There are two particular areas where our government's policies don't really have anything to do with who's in Congress or who's in the White House. These areas are monetary policy and war. Um, The reason is the agencies that control these are mostly made up of appointed and hired officials rather than elected officials. It was made that way so that it would be some stability, right? You don't want the country's monetary policy to change drastically every four years, and you don't want the entire military basically being turned over and changing hands every time we elect a new president. So it does make a little bit of sense functionally, but the problem that comes along with that is those portions of our government are essentially unchecked, and they're basically free to govern themselves however they please, They have no accountability whatsoever from you, the taxpayer. Even if you wanted to vote, even if you wanted to start a movement to get this stopped, there's a good chance that it's not going to happen because you can't get to those people who who have the power to make those types of decisions. Just to give you an example, um, here's a clip of Dick Cheney when he finds out that two-thirds of the country wanted to get our troops out of Iraq. Two-thirds of Americans say it's not worth fighting. And they're looking at the value gained versus the cost in American lives, certainly, and Iraqi lives. So? So? You you don't care what the American people think? No, I think uh, you cannot be um, blown off course by the uh, uh, fluctuations in the public opinion polls. (laughs) Really? So, that's exactly how much your vote means to Dick Cheney, and I promise you that it's the same for guys like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. That's why on this show, we're always going to point out that almost every president is the same when it comes to things like defense spending, foreign policy, printing money, going to war in other countries, all that stuff. People have this nasty, nasty tendency to think that if, uh, if I agree with something that Barack Obama does, then that must mean that I'm a Democrat and that I hate Trump. Or if I agree with something that Trump does, that means that, you know, I wear my MAGA hat around all the time and, uh, you know, that I'm just a, a hardcore Republican. And the reality is, one, we need to judge these people based on the individual things that they're doing, not what team they're on and not what team we're on, but also... The things that are probably the most important don't really change from Republican to Democrat. Both groups love the money. Both groups love the power. 
And both groups are going to do everything they can to keep their hands on that because the worst case scenario for them at this point is I've got to give it up for four years and wait for somebody to vote me back in. But I know that I'm going to get that power back if I just wait around long enough or the people you know on my team or in my group are going to get that power back. So uh, don't get too stressed out about what president we're talking about or anything like that because... Uh, again, you know, they're individuals. We need to judge them as individuals, but at the same time, a lot of times, as you will also see here, it's going to get passed from one party to the next and virtually goes unchanged. Our current role in the Middle East, what, off the top of my head, you know, goes back to at least uh, the older George Bush, and he just kind of passed the baton forward to... Bill Clinton, and then his son, George Bush, and then to Barack Obama, and then to Trump, and we're just rolling right on through. So, any conversation where we talk about relations in the Middle East, you're going to hear people talk about the Sunnis and the Shiites. These are the two main branches of the Muslim faith. Uh, Way back when, there was an argument over who would be the proper successor to Muhammad. A lot of blood has been shed over that. The Sunnis make up something like... 80% of the Muslim population, but that also includes the Muslim population worldwide. So most Muslims outside of the Middle East, they're almost all Sunni. So when you get into the Middle East, where things are a little bit more crowded, um, that ratio is going to be a little bit more even than 80-20 from Sunnis to Shiites. Uh, They have some fundamental differences. Uh, They have different holidays, different requirements to get into paradise. Um... I'm not going to get really specific about any of those differences because they're not important to this discussion about Yemen and about what's going on. Um, But I think that you could kind of compare it to Protestants and Catholics where uh, the very core beliefs are the same, um, but the methods around those beliefs are very different. And, you know, again, some of the requirements to to get into heaven or whatever. These differences result in a lot of tension and racism. Um, And it often manifests itself in government relations as well. So, if you have a certain group in power, then that often means that the other group is marginalized and they're treated like second-class citizens. Um, That causes a lot of anger and hate and resentment. And in some places, that means that the minority people try to rise up and overthrow the government. And if they take over, then the other group becomes marginalized, right? The best way I can think to describe this is try to imagine America during the Jim Crow laws, right? And there's all this segregation, and African Americans are really treated, you know, they're they're second-class citizens. They don't have the same rights as other people. And imagine, though, if instead of a civil rights movement that was relatively peaceful, what if they rose up in rebellion and they took over the government? And so now they're in power. And they replace all of the Jim Crow laws with uh, John Crow laws, you know. And now the white people are the second-class citizens. But then eventually, after so much time, the white people get mad. And they rise up and they revolt. And every time, of course, you're getting new people into government. And every time that power changes, there's resentment left over and all of this buildup from all of the last times. So you're tempted to be even more ruthless and to treat the other people even worse so that you can get them back for what they did to you the last time. Um, That's kind of how this culture is in the Middle East. And a lot of times it's not nearly as important 
as to what country's border you lives in, the same way that in America here you might be proud of what state you come from and you're proud to be an American. Um, instead, it is what is your what is your religious group and, and kind of what tribe do you belong to? Those things I are what you identify with much, much more than just what zip code you live in, right? And that's the main reason why there's so much tension in the Middle East, and that's also the, the reason why it can be so, so difficult to understand what's going on between these Middle Eastern countries and who's fighting with who, and, and also why you know some people flat out change sides because there are just so many people involved. That's why for us, on the outside looking in, it can be so confusing and so complicated. So, going into Yemen... We're going to talk about the geography real quick first, just so we know where we're at. Uh, Yemen is a little bit bigger than Montana. Um, It sits right at the bottom of Saudi Arabia. So it's got a gulf. It's got water on the uh, the west, and it wraps underneath the south of it. And and it's about the size of Montana. So uh, if you Google north-south Yemen map, like the third image I think that comes up, um, gives you a good idea of what it looks like. So if you if you have a minute to do that, that would be great. If not, like I said, it's about the size of Montana. So if you picture it as kind of a rounded rectangle, just know that North Yemen takes up a third of the country and it sits in the northwest corner. So if you're looking at the map, it's kind of in your top left corner and uh, it takes up about a third of the country. And then South Yemen is like the central and the eastern parts, but also... They've got kind of like a panhandle type thing that wraps down underneath North Yemen and goes all the way to the west. So North Yemen doesn't really have a southern border uh, on the water. South Yemen takes up the whole southern border um, and kind of wraps around the north and blocks it off from the water. Saudi Arabia is above it, and then again, you've got water, uh, the Gulf on the south and the west coast. And if you cross the Gulf there, you're you're in Africa. Uh, Somalia is right there and a couple other things. So... Anyway, uh, the capital city is Sana, and that's in North Yemen. And uh, North Yemen is mostly Shiite, going back to our Sunni and Shiite conversation. Um, South Yemen is mostly Sunni. A brief history of where Yemen came from. Um, Ottoman Empire broke up in 1918. North Yemen became a country. And, of course, the whole way through it, there is a fair amount of violence and attempted coups at whoever's in charge. Um, But... That doesn't really affect the U.S. up to this point, so we're just kind of blow through it. Um, in the late 60s, uh, Britain left South Yemen and uh, just basically took out their colonists or whatever and decided just to leave, uh, and South Yemen becomes a country in the late 1960s. Uh, South Yemen has a communist coup pretty early in their thing, uh, and they became an ally with the Soviet Union. They were actually the only communist state in the Middle East, Finally, the mid-80s, the commies get overthrown, and the new prime minister wants to reunite with the North. So, in 1990, they formally unite. President Saleh, who has been the president in the North Yemen, uh, he took over in like 78, he stays president, he's already been president for quite a while, and uh, the leader from South Yemen gets to be vice president. Even though it's called president, the, the president's really just a king or dictator, there aren't any real elections or anything like that, but it is important to note that President Saleh was the leader of North Yemen and then of Yemen as it's joined for a really long time. From this point forward, on paper, yeah, Yemen is one country, 
Um, but I'm going to keep referring to them as North and South Yemen just so that we know we're talking about different regions of people uh, trading power back and forth and this and that. But the official country is officially just Yemen. So uh, in 1994, they do their best impression of the U.S. Uh, and the South gets fed up and tries to secede. And the North, not to be outdone, says, absolutely not. You're not leaving. And they crush the rebellion and they bring him back in. President Saleh from North Yemen is still in charge. and His people are Shiite. Um, about the mid early to mid-90s, there's a guy named Al-Houthi. And he starts uh, almost kind of like a tea party group of other Shiites who want to get the Shiite regime back to something that is closer to their version of Shia. And these people are named the Houthis. It's important to remember this because we're going to come back to them, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard of them before. Now, the Houthis' motto is, God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory for Islam. Obviously, this doesn't sit well with the U.S. and Israel, but you need to remember that this is a small faction in the poorest country in the Middle East. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. You know, It's just some guy on the road yelling obscenities at you as you drive by. It does not matter. Eventually, the Houthis really shift away from religion, and they turn mostly political. They're going to keep growing this whole time. Just try to keep them in the back of your mind because they're going to be back later. So, let's talk a quick second. Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is one of America's most powerful and most controversial allies. They have a lot of money, a lot of oil, and they're run by a monarchy. Again, Yemen sits at their southern border. It's just kind of like almost, uh, I guess if you looked at it as an island, it's the bottom part of the island. Saudi Arabia is Sunni. South Yemen is Sunni. So, in all of these conflicts in Yemen, Saudi Arabia is going to be offering their support to South Yemen. Okay? Also, in the region, is the Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is also Sunni. So, you can uh, lump them in when you're talking about who is, you know, who's with who. South Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and Al-Qaeda, they're all Sunni. They're all together. Um, and they obviously don't like that the Shiites are in control in North Yemen, in the capital, officially the government of Yemen. Just as a quick reference here while we're talking about Al-Qaeda, there were 400 people in Al-Qaeda when George Bush took office. And uh, after he bombed them for like seven years, they were up to 4,000 when Obama took office. Um, the lesson to be learned here is that when you bomb innocent people to get to the bad guys, they're going to create more bad guys. Every single time. So, hopefully you're still with me. Um, now it's 2009. Our new president, Barack Obama, takes office. And it's time for him to make his mark on history. And he's going to get aggressive. And he's going to finish off Al-Qaeda once and for all. Uh, no more Mr. Nice Guy. We're going to go in there and we're going to wipe them out. It's time to unleash the drones. This was something that was a, a huge part of Barack Obama's presidency and his military stuff. So Barack Obama and the CIA decide to bribe President Saleh of Yemen, North Yemen, the Shiites. They're going to bribe him. The deal is the CIA and the U.S. will give President Saleh all kinds of guns and money, and in return... He'll let Obama run drone strikes all over Al-Qaeda 
in South Yemen. Plenty of guns and money. You let me do what I need to do in your in the southern part of your country, and we'll call it even. Cool? Everybody's happy, right? Good deal. So we start bombing Al-Qaeda, and they're not just out on their own. They don't have military bases the same way that you would think of an American military base, just being fenced off. Um, instead, you know, they live among civilians. They live in cities with these civilians. And when you bomb them, you're going to hit civilians. And one of the things that uh, Obama would actually do here is what uh, Scott Horton calls it the double tap. Uh, a lot of this information comes from Scott Horton, by the way. He is absolutely fantastic. He knows so much about the Middle East, and sometimes he can be hard to follow. And so what I've done is I've tried to take a lot of the things that he said uh, and put them in a better timeline so that they're a little bit easier to understand. But um, Obama would go in after these Al-Qaeda people, and he would do a double tap. That's where you bomb an area, and everything's you know in rubble, everything's crashed down, a bunch of people were dead. And then when other volunteers and other people start to come out and look for survivals and start to try to kind of pick through the rubble a little bit, you bomb it again, and you take out the volunteers. And sometimes you'll even triple tap, and you'll go in and you'll bomb the next round of volunteers as well. Winston Churchill came up with the technique. He called it terror bombing. Anyone who lives in that area, anyone who might be supportive of Al-Qaeda, and maybe they're not supportive, maybe they just live there, this is supposed to take all hope away from them. And, and it, it's supposed to hopefully encourage them to surrender as soon as possible and to maybe even throw out the, the bad guys, throw them out under the bus uh, because you don't want to be, be part of this anymore. But it's a nasty, nasty technique. And um, when you think back to... A lot of those videos of George Bush saying, you know, they hate us because we're free. They hate us because of our freedom. Let's be real here. They don't hate us because of our freedom. They hate us because we do stuff like this. Now, if you were taking notes earlier, you remember what happens when you bomb the bad guys and end up killing innocent people with collateral damage. Yes, you create more bad guys. By the way, these kind of bombings were the motivation behind uh, the attempted Times Square bombing and the underwear bomber. They were trying to get back and trying to take out some of our people because we had taken out so many of theirs. Again, I'm not saying that it makes it right, but it makes it a whole lot easier to understand these things when you try to look at something from somebody else's point of view instead of just a, a cheap line like, uh, they hate you because you're allowed to go to the grocery store whenever you want. Al-Qaeda continues to grow, obviously, because we're bombing them and we're creating more people who have sympathy for them. And President Saleh continues to collect guns and money from the U.S. But uh, while Obama is giving away arms and bombing al-Qaeda in the South, President Saleh has his own problems. He's kind of running a double game here. Um, the Houthis, who we talked about earlier, are putting more and more pressure on him from the North. So he's got al-Qaeda on his South border. Obama's taking care of them for him, or trying to. And then his other problem is in the North, and the Houthis are getting very frustrated with the way that the government's being run, um, and they want to take over. And uh, back in 2004, they killed their leader, Al-Houthi. Obviously, they were hoping that would kind of shut it down, but instead it just created martyrs, and now they're even more empowered, and they're kind of knocking on his door from the North now. So, finally, in 2011, Arab Spring happens. Tens of thousands of citizens take to the street. And they want to demand that President Saleh steps down. Um, Ron Paul will tell you that the CIA's fingerprints were all over this. And a lot of this was really uh, the fire was stoked by the U.S. And we wanted them calling for democracy and all of this stuff. Um, so that that could further 
destabilize the region and, and get the people that we wanted in power to get those people to have the power. In 2012, finally, President Saleh kind of bows to pressure. Everybody's after him. Uh, Al-Qaeda is going after him from the south. The people are flooding the streets. The Houthis are coming from the north. And everybody just wants him to go away so that they can have their democracy. Hillary Clinton even comes in. She made a big deal about how this was the advent of a beautiful new democracy in Yemen. Um, you know, everything is going to be better now. They're going to have the same freedoms that we have. And everything is just going to be fantastic. And everybody's going to live happily after, ever after. Well, we helped them set up a democracy the best way we knew how. And finally, in the year 2012, uh, Yemen finally becomes a civilized Western democracy and has their first election. In this election, there was one man on the ballot. Vice President Hadi, who was from South Yemen, again, a Sunni. The Saudis are Sunni. That means we're on their side. He's the only guy on the ballot. Now, I don't have to tell you that these guys in Yemen are a whole bunch of suckers because everybody knows in a real democracy, you get two choices. They only got one. Um, so, in a move that surprises absolutely nobody, the Sunni from South Yemen received 99.8% of the vote. Um, I'm assuming the other 0.2% voted for Gary Johnson. Can't confirm that, but uh, he became the new president of Yemen. Fantastic. Great. After like 40 years, President Saleh had finally been removed from the throne. Now, the reason democracy a lot of times doesn't work in the Middle East is because it doesn't really fit in with the culture they have. In that culture, and again, Culture isn't something that you can just change, right? You grow up with this around you and you believe that this is the way things are. And we're all guilty of that because it's just the way you're programmed. You've only, you've only known what you've known. There's no way that you can just be immediately opened up to other people's ways of doing things, especially if it's something that is not ingrained in you and you don't understand. Most often in the Middle East, the guy who takes the power is the guy that proves that he is the most ruthless guy in the room. You rise up, somebody else rises up and gets in your face. You threaten to shove him. He threatens to punch you. You threaten to pull a knife on him. He threatens to pull a gun on you. Uh, you threaten to have the five guys that are with you all pull their guns on him. And eventually it just keeps on escalating until either somebody dies or somebody backs off and steps down. But the guy on top is the one who's the leader now. And that's how things work so often in their culture. And that's why there's so much instability. And so you've got these evil, violent men uh, at the top of the food chain pushing each other back and forth, trying to see who can be the most ruthless to make sure that they can take power and then that they can keep that power. And then you've got other more peaceful people, weaker people, whatever you want to call it, that are the regular citizens who are hopefully just staying out of the way and trying not to get hurt. You know, life might suck if the other group is in power, but it could be worse. You could be a slave. You could be in a concentration camp. So you're just going to make do the best you can, fly low under the radar, and hope for the best. And, and that's what a lot of their lives are like. Now, when you take a democracy, uh, especially one that's so strong that you only had one guy on the ballot, and you drop this puppet leader, and you drop him into the middle of this tough, violent culture, um... You're not going to choose a puppet who's violent. You're going to choose a puppet who will do what you want him to do because that's how puppets work. They're weak, just like real puppets. They're not ruthless. They don't have what it takes 
to hang with the other people that are surrounding them. So, needless to say, things fall apart pretty quickly for our new president, Hadi. He's not equipped to deal with the other strong men that are surrounding him. Uh, Al-Qaeda from the south keeps attacking the rebels from the north. So, you know, even though their group is in power, they're trying to push the other group out even more. Um, and while all of this is going on, President Saleh, who they have kicked out and told, you know, to leave, that he's not welcome here anymore, he says, you know what? You can't fire me. I quit. He took his shiny guns that Obama gave him. He took all of his money. And he took two-thirds of the country's military with him, and they went up north and joined the Houthis, who they'd been fighting against for the past two decades. Instantly, they become the most powerful group in Yemen. Now, as we've said, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. are allies. Israel and the U.S. are allies. Israel hates Iran. Saudi Arabia also hates Iran. South Yemen, the Sunnis, also hate Shiite Iran. Guess what that means for the United States? All those friends that we have, they hate Iran. That means we hate Iran too. So, all of this is going on in Yemen. And anytime the Houthis did something to fight against Al-Qaeda or South Yemen... Um, the U.S. would blame Iran for the attacks. They would say that they put them up to it. It's important to note that just because the Houthis and Iran were friendly with one another doesn't mean that they were the exact same people. Just the same way that the U.S. and their allies are not necessarily the same people, it's the same with Houthis and Iran. So anytime the Houthis did something, the U.S. would try to blame Iran for it. But the truth is, a lot of times Iran was giving them some advice and telling them that they needed to back off. And one of the big things that Iran told the Houthis was, whatever you do, do not take over the capital city of Yemen. Do not take over the city of Sana, because the Saudis are going to get involved and you will have a real mess on your hands if you do that. Okay? But the U.S. kept blaming Iran for everything that they did. Um, and that caused the tensions to rise even more with Iran in that area. On top of all of this that's going on, Iran uses nuclear energy. They do not have nuclear weapons, and if they decided tomorrow that they wanted to build nukes, it would take them at least a full year to develop a warhead and find a way to deliver it. Realistically, that's plenty of time for the U.S. and Israel to form countermeasures, but Iran is an enemy, and uh, the Republicans and Israel don't want Iran having any part of the nuclear stuff. So, of course, they're acting like they're in a panic. You know, Iran could attack, attack at any time. They're going to nuke Israel. We've got to do something about it. So, in 2015, Barack Obama makes a really good, clever move here, um, and he creates the Iran nuclear deal. This was back in the news recently when Trump ended it and said that it was a bad deal, but it was actually it was a good thing. So... The deal goes like this. We will lift the sanctions that we have on Iran, and in exchange, Iran will let the UN come in and check for weapons uh, every so often. I don't know if it's once a month, every six months. I don't know exactly what the schedule is, but uh, the UN is allowed to come in often enough to make sure that they can look around Iran stuff and say, nope, you're not building any nukes. You're just using the nuclear energy. No problem. Everybody's happy. 
Well, Iran jumps all over it. They're happy because they're not making nukes anyway. And now the lifted sanctions help them do more business around the world. And to sweeten the deal, uh, we even agreed to give them pallets full of cash. This is what, when you hear your Republican uncle freaking out about all this money that Obama gave our Muslim enemies in Iran, this is the money he's talking about. Conservatives went absolutely just stupid crazy over this. And what they don't tell you is uh, Jimmy Carter basically confiscated that money from Iran back in the 70s. Uh, and an international court had already told us we had to give it back. Uh, I'll link to an article from Time in the show notes if you want to click on that. Uh, go read about it if you're interested. But basically, they had already told us we had to give the money back to them because we shouldn't have had it anyway. And uh, as part of the deal, we gave them the money that we were already going to have to give them that had belonged to them in the first place. So the money there is a non-issue uh, regardless of what your crazy uncle tells you. Again, this is a pretty good deal. Obama managed to really thread the needle here. Um, he appeased the panicking of Israel and the Republicans, got them to calm down, and he reduced tension with Iran by making a deal that helped everybody out there. Reduced tensions with your enemies is a good thing. You know, It's just like dealing with people in real life. You don't want to be coming to blows all the time. Sometimes it takes somebody just to step down a little bit and say, you know what, I'm going to be the better person and I'm going to, I'm going to back off. And that way everybody will have cooler heads because of this. So Republicans in Israel are happy enough. The UN's happy that they get to go through Iran stuff all the time. Iran's happy because they weren't going to make nukes anyway. And uh, now they've got their sanctions lifted. Obama's happy because, you know, he pulled off a pretty smooth move and got everybody to calm down. Great. What could possibly go wrong? Well, remember when I said that Saudi Arabia hates Iran? Remember when I said Saudi Arabia was our most powerful ally in the Middle East? Well, we made such a good deal with Iran that it hurt Saudi Arabia's feelings that we had helped one of their enemies. And now Saudi Arabia is doing kind of the jealous girlfriend thing, and they're worrying that the U.S., was starting to tilt away from them and starting to tilt toward Iran. Now, again, this wasn't true. This was this was Obama just calming everybody down, but instead what it did was it got Saudi Arabia riled up. Well, who cares? Saudi Arabia, be sad, right? No. No, we care. Saudi Arabia sells their oil in U.S. dollars. If they pulled the plug on that, they could single-handedly wreck the U.S. economy in no time. We have to make sure that that jealous girlfriend in Saudi Arabia, she knows she's still number one in our hearts, right? There is a theory. It cannot be proven, um, but there's a lot of evidence and uh, a, lot of, a lot of stuff that would support that. And uh, again, Scott Horton is my main resource on this, and this is something that he believes. There's a theory that we promised to help the Saudis keep their monarch family in power and we would help protect their reign if they would agree to make sure that they always traded that they always traded oil in US dollars. Um, and that really just holds up our currency. Um, of course, we've got the military power to do it. Again, I can't prove that. That's not something that you're going to find written in a history book anywhere. If you want to dig into it and dig into more of that evidence, um, by all means, go out there and do it. But it is something that makes a lot of sense, and even if there's not some kind of secret backdoor deal that you know maybe you don't know about, 
there, there's plenty of support out there anyway just to say, listen, they can really mess up their money if, if they wanted to, and we all know it, okay? So while Saudi Arabia is getting upset, they're having some change of the guard in their leaders as well. Uh, the old guy in charge of Saudi Arabia, he had been incapacitated. I think he had a stroke. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he was, he was too old to lead anymore and was uh, stepped down. And his son had just taken over as deputy crown prince. And he needed a war to settle himself in, you know, as the man of the house. So what he does is all his brothers and uncles, he has them all arrested. He confiscates all their wealth and he calls it an anti-corruption campaign. So he wants to look like the, gr- the good guy and he's coming in and rounding up all the bad guys, uh, really just making sure that nobody can challenge him for power. And he promotes himself from Deputy Crown Prince to Crown Prince. And he decided he was going to run the Houthis out of Yemen and make sure that the South Yemenis, his fellow Sunnis, uh, were put back into power in the country. That's going to be his thing that he does to make a name for himself. So, just as Iran had warned them not to do, the Houthis, who now have joined with the former President Saleh and have a bunch of the National Army with them, they take over the capital and run the puppet president Hadi out of town. Uh, first, they chase him down to South Yemen, down to Aden, and eventually uh, he gets so scared and so worried that he actually just straight up flees to Saudi Arabia. They sneak him out of there, and um, he's in Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is still telling Yemen, this is your president here in our country. You need to listen to him. But, of course, nobody cares because the Houthis are the ones who have the power at this point and who have taken over the capital. About the same time, the Iran deal is happening, and Saudi Arabia has their feelings hurt about that. So Saudi Arabia and al-Qaeda are really gearing up to take over Yemen, and they want to make sure that it stays a Sunni state and that they can run the Houthis out. So uh, what the U.S. does is they basically, um, you know, we've been fighting al-Qaeda this whole time, but we basically just pull uh, kind of a Lando Calrissian, and we agree that we're going to stop fighting al-Qaeda, and immediately, we just turn the bombs the other direction, and we join with al-Qaeda and our allies, Saudi Arabia, uh, in a mission to take on the Houthis, who are controlling Yemen at this point. So, since late 2015, we, the U.S., U.S. forces run all of the reconnaissance, all the surveillance, and all the intel in Yemen for the Saudis and al-Qaeda. We tell them where to bomb. Tens of thousands of people have been bombed to death at this point. Our Navy has set up a blockade on the sea south of Yemen to make sure that no food or medical supplies can get in. Because of this, hundreds of thousands of people have died from deprivation. We sell fighter jets to the Saudis. We run our own refueling tanker jets uh, that refuel the Saudi fighter jets mid-flight while they're going on these bombing missions. And there are even reports that in the early missions, we had American co-pilots riding in the backseat, guiding the Saudis in to strike these Yemeni targets. The Saudis, they've bombed hospitals, they've bombed schools, they've bombed school buses, and the U.S. has provided them with the intel to do that. This leads to further death and deprivation because the hospitals don't do any good to help people when they've been bombed as well. Uh, the Saudis have also bombed a lot of the Yemeni waterworks, which has led to a massive cholera epidemic that they've had there. It was estimated at one time that they were almost at a million cases of cholera uh, because they don't have clean water to deal with it. 
and the U.S. has held Saudi Arabia's hand every step of the way. Now, the good news is, in 2016, United States of America elected Donald Trump, who ran a campaign putting America's needs first and bringing our troops home from unnecessary wars. So, yes, Trump takes office, he ends the unconstitutional wars, uh, brings all our men and women from overseas back to be reunited with their families, and everyone lived happily ever after. Uh, No, never mind, I messed that up. Um, Trump took office and nothing changed. The wars keep going. Our strategy in Yemen did not change. Not only are we still fighting with Al-Qaeda in Yemen, we're also still fighting with Al-Qaeda in Syria. And... Trump was supposed to change all of this, and none of it budged. You know, he did bring us a little bit more peace and communication, better relations than we've ever had with North Korea, but now he's looking for reasons to go to war with Iran and to possibly do the same thing in Venezuela. So you take one step forward and two steps back. He even declared that he was bringing the troops home from Syria, where we're also fighting with Al-Qaeda, but as soon as his advisors got back into the room with him, he changed his mind back on that too. And that's, that's the thing, is he's surrounded by these neocons who just want to go to war with everybody and just want to bomb peace to the whole world. And uh, it, it seems like a lot of times his instincts are right. You know, he knows that this is hurting people, that this is hurting our country's relations with other countries, and that, you know, it's a, it's a waste of our troops' time. You know, you're sending human beings, you're sending mothers and fathers and, and sons and daughters out of their families to go over here and get involved in somebody else's civil war just because you were messing around with too many countries anyway and you've hurt somebody's feelings. And now you've got to appease them to make sure that your money's all right. Tom Woods says, uh, no matter who you vote for, you always get John McCain. Ain't that the truth? So, you know, Obama got us into this war. Trump has picked it right up, just kept on going with it. No issues. And most people didn't even know that we were in Yemen. Like I said, until Saudi Arabia tied Khashoggi to a table and cut him up with a bone saw, we would probably still just completely be ignoring it. But if any good could come from that, it brought our attention to it. And it brought its attention to Congress as well. You know, And they finally voted and they said, we don't need to do this. We don't need to support the Saudis in this. It would be in our best interest to step back out of the way and stop helping them with it. And Donald Trump, more likely his advisors, the people he surrounded himself with, said we couldn't leave our allies hanging out to dry. And, um, you know, we don't even have troops on the ground. So, you know, how are you going to try to recall the troops when their, their boots aren't on the ground in Yemen? So what does it matter? It's not even a real war is kind of what they're getting at. But look, the lives lost here are real. The starvation of this people because our Navy has set up at the southern border and won't let any food or medicine cross into the country That starvation is real. The double tap where you bomb people and then bomb the rescuers and then bomb the good Samaritans that come in after them, that's real. And our nation is playing a huge part in it. Unfortunately for the people of Yemen, oil is worth a lot of money. Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil and they do a lot of business selling that oil. And that oil business allows our politicians to get rich selling weapons, moving money, lobbying for contracts, and gaining power over villagers on the opposite side of the world. You want to look at the big picture? Yemen is ranked 168 out of 188 on the uh, Human Development Index, which measures life expectancy, education, standard of living. 
We're the largest empire in the world. Their elections shouldn't matter to us. Their political business, their political fighting shouldn't matter to us. Yes, it is true. The Middle East was violent long before oil was discovered. Uh, It was violent long before the U.S. got involved in foreign politics. The world is not always a pleasant place. I'm not telling you that it is. I'm not pretending that any of those places over there are great places to live. But our country's involvement is making things worse and not better. Bombing innocent people to get to the terrorists only creates more terrorists. Toppling sovereign nations to put in puppet leaders only creates more power vacuums filled by more ruthless dictators. And choosing sides in someone else's quarrels only causes more quarrels. We can't bomb our way to peace. We can't dictate our way to democracy. And we can't strong arm our way to freedom. If we really want to help the people of the Middle East, the people of Yemen, we need to trade with them. Let them share their goods and culture with us, and we can share our goods and culture with them. Send them charitable aid with no strings attached. Where goods cross borders, armies do not. Those are the relationships that lead to real change instead of just swapping violent dictators every few years. Those are the steps it takes to instill our values of peace, property rights, and free markets. Those are the building blocks to a better future, not only for us, but also for the poorest countries in the world and for everyone in between. Hey, I know there was a lot to keep track of there. Thank you for sticking with me through it, and hopefully you picked up something. If you liked today's podcast, share it with your friends. Uh, if you want to hit me up with any questions or hate mail, facebook.com slash Garrett again. Uh, I'm at twitter.com as well, Garrett again. Or you can email me at Garrett again at pm.me. As always, that's Garrett with just one R. So reach out. Let me know if you learned something. Uh, I know this foreign policy is complicated stuff, but Too many people ignore it because they think it's too hard and they turn a blind eye while our public officials can literally get away with murder in some of these things. I'd like to do my part on this show to resist that and I would love for you to help. Our first guiding principle is peace and it's important that we live that way even with people who live on the other side of the earth. So thanks for listening. I'm going to be back with another show, probably going to do every other week for a little while, maybe do every other Monday. So in two weeks, I will see you. We may talk about Venezuela. We may talk about Julian Assange. We may see what else comes up. Hit me up if you got something you want to talk about. But until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.